All right, hello and welcome to our panel. This is a live uh, recording of our CAA Conversations podcast episode. And to give a little bit of history, my name is Ellen Mueller. Um, I'm at Minneapolis College of Art and Design directing the MFA program there. And I founded this podcast a few years ago just to showcase the breadth of wonderful um, experience that CAA members have. And um, today we're going to be talking with two fantastic people and my colleague Karen Gergley here will be introducing them to us. Hi, um, yeah, I'm Karen Gergley and I'm down in Southern Iowa at Graceland University. Today we're with Rachel Beth Egenhofer, the professor of design at the University of San Francisco and Peter Dean, senior critic at the Department of Furniture Design, Nature, Culture, Sustainability Studies concentration at the Rhode Island School of Design. Today, their topic is sustainable design, beyond the stuff, towards the system, a conversation between Rachel Beth Igenhofer and Peter Dean. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. It's really glad to be here. Um, Peter, I'm excited to have this conversation with you today because I think we, um, well, we're on two different coasts um, at two different schools um, and teach different sets of of students, but we both have this interest in sustainability and kind of pushing the conversation beyond just making stuff. Um, so I wonder if you might just start off a little bit by telling us um, a little bit more about what you teach and how you got into teaching sustainable design. Golly, it goes back quite a ways. I was an environmental science major at Colby College back in 1970. And uh, it was then, uh, Shortly after that, that I, I didn't finish there. I transferred actually to, to RISD and um, I got my architectural degree there. And um, environmental and, and uh, other issues have always been uh, sort of central to my thinking, uh, but not always to my education, sadly. Um, I think the architecture department back in the mid seventies was, all about uh, making the cover of Architectural Record or some other fancy um, publication or becoming an all-star architect kind of thing. Um, and I think it's a sad, uh, was then anyway, a sad state of affairs for um, education in general. But I then went from uh, architecture to uh, study theology and psychology at the University of Notre Dame. And um, this was a bit of a flyer at least I thought so at the time, but it became uh, really uh, an integral part of my thinking uh, going forward. Um, and then uh, I was, I've been teaching at RISD since 1997, since the fall of 97, and um, in the Department of Furniture Design, and uh, loving every minute of it. Um, I taught the sophomore design studio in the department. And then I also taught the senior degree project for a while. So I'd get them coming and going, uh, which was sort of fun to see the progress that the students had made. Um, but then I had a really interesting experience. I was a board member of an organization called the Marion Institute. And um, we um, ended up going on a trip to Las Gaviotas, which is an eco village in Colombia, um, which was, um, absolutely instrumental in my teaching and my thinking. Uh, this is an eco village um, in a place that is so remote, the birds don't even have fears of humans. 
I mean, it is, it's really a remarkably uh, remote, uh, but profound project where they've regenerated about close to 30,000 acres of fully canopied polyculture rainforest in a place that hasn't had rainforest in 650,000 years. And this is the brain trust of a man named Paolo Ligari. Um, and he started in the mid seventies with this idea. And um, in a place where totally inhospitable to, to uh, growing trees in general. And um, all the experts told him, forget it, it'll never happen. And as I said, 30,000 acres later, he's proved them all wrong. So it, it was a really comprehensive uh, project. And I, and I say that um, in the true meaning of the word in that every aspect of, of uh, human life and natural life and economic life and material life and all these things were seen as part and parcel of the same thing. They were not divided up into disciplines, if you will, or to various expertises. Um, it was very much a systemic approach. And the result of which is just uh, astonishing. The place is miraculous. <laughs> um, and it's, I give it, it's one of the lectures I give in my um, Nature Culture Sustainability Core Seminar, uh, which is about an hour long lecture on this village. And interestingly enough, um, I met a man on that trip. This is 14, 15 years ago now. I met a man on that trip named Michael Benelli. And Michael is, uh, has his doctorate in cybernetics. He was a devotee of R. Buckminster Fuller. And um, we became friendly with that, on that trip. And when we were leaving, he turned to me and said, you know, I'm gonna do a Las Gaviotas of the desert. And the project that he started is now called Wadi Atir. And it's in a uh, region of the Negev Desert in Israel. Um, and it it's, starts initially with the, and continues with the um, uh, indigenous wisdom of the Bedouin population. Um, and it is the project itself, Wadi Atir, um, it is uh, another miraculous Las Gaviotas, if you will. Uh, and it shows what can be done when you're thinking uh, systemically. Um, and Michael, before he uh, started this project, he realized he needed to fully understand the um, underlying principles of, of uh, sustainable thinking and sustainable design. And so he wrote a, what I think is the most operationally useful definition of sustainability that I have ever come across. Um, and that I've been reading this stuff since I mentioned in the early 70s. Um, th this is a remarkable document. It's called the five core principles of sustainability. And it talks about five domains. Uh, the material domain, which is basically the laws of thermodynamics, uh, those things that we all um, are subject to, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, and then there's the economic domain, which uh, has to do uh, you know, with, um, uh, in my way of thinking about this, it, it's um, uh, sort of a full spectrum accounting. Uh, so you don't have any of these things they call externalities <laughs> where the, all, the, all the nasty stuff is dumped on the commons and the, the, uh, you, know, you can present your balance sheet clean, if you will. Um, this is completely erroneous. Um, 
and, and deleterious to our environment for sure. Um, and there's many examples that, that, that I could go into at length about this, but um, hundreds of millions of dollars of quote profit are actually um, come right out of the commons, right out of the, of the environment. Um, and we, didn't, we, have, we haven't so far really been accounting for this. And this is problematic. Anyway, the economic domain, then there's the domain of life, which has to do with the preservation of biodiversity. And it has to do with understanding the, the na nature's laws. And those laws, which we as humans think don't apply to us, <laughs> are just um, absolutely uh, as absolute as the material uh, thermodynamic laws. Um, and we, you know, we talk about the five kingdoms of nature, the three and a half to four billion year arc of complexity, increasing complexity. And, um, and then, the, you know, you, you begin to have a sort of a biospheric awareness that, it, that we are not separate from nature, that we are in fact uh, intimately and completely dependent on a healthy biosphere if we expect to be healthy organisms. Um, then, I go, then it goes into the social domain and finally the spiritual domain. And unfortunately, um, the, the, well, first of all, the, the uh, social domain has to do with, with um, basically adjusting uh, human behavior uh, to come into accordance with uh, natural systems. Um, and that's um, difficult, <laughs> um, but it comes first and foremost by understanding that we are in, far, in fact a part of uh, nature, inextricably so. Um, and then the, the adjustment of that human behavior uh, is probably one of the more difficult things, uh, challenges that we have. Um, you know, we, we have spent <clears throat> many thousands of years treating nature as our personal purview at the expense of virtually every other organism. Um, and it's unfortunate. And we are now paying the, or seeing the prices uh, of that particular behavior. And then finally, the spiritual domain. It's very interesting. Michael, when he was writing this, this um, document, he wrote the first four and he thought he was done. And it wasn't working. And finally, he uh, included the, uh, what he also calls the value domain, the value proposition or the spiritual domain, uh, which has to do with, with um, sort of, in my way of thinking, an embracing of uncertainty. Uh, a willingness to accept that we are never going to know everything um, and that um, any claim of any, let's say, put it this way, the first casualty of any claim of certainty uh, is an open mind, right? Once you make that claim, it's like game over, right? So um, th this willing, willingness to embrace uncertainty and to understand one's paradigm. What, 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 you know, we all think we have one. I mean, may even be uh, privileged to know what it is. <laughs> um, but for the most part, I think um, it goes unnoticed. Um, but it, it plays a really critical role, I believe. Uh, in, in other words, what we believe, um, you know, determines what we're able to perceive. Right? I think that's a critical point. Um, and if, if there's a particular phenomenon, if there's no place for that in our paradigm, 
it's, it just doesn't exist for us, right? So this idea of cultivating a flexibility in one's paradigm where you embrace uncertainty, um, I think, and the reason I think this is so critical is that it unleashes, unburdens um, one's creative impulse, right? If, if you don't have to have the answer, if you don't have to be certain on the outset of something, everything's possible suddenly, <laughs> right? And it, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful, um, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive in some ways. We, we've been so um, sort of indoctrinated into this, having the right answer, being certain about whatever it is you're into. Um, and those things I think are stifling. Yeah. It's great to hear about um, kind of the background and the story of how you arrived here. And I think there's a lot of um, similarities in, um, in our stories, but yet very different. Um, so, you know, I think about what really got me into <clears throat> looking at sustainability and the environment as it relates to design is also through travel. Um, but whereas you traveled to an eco-village, um, I spent a year traveling all over the world and I spent um, time in South Africa where I saw you know, villages where people were living and creating entire cities out of old shipping containers and Cape Town, South Africa is like a huge shipping port, right? And so it was really interesting to see this shipping port and all of these containers become villages for people. And then after that, I spent a lot of time in China and um, to see the vast disparities of wealth in China and also to see all these shipping containers in another way. You know, you see the markets uh, that are selling just junk and stuff and you know, like stuff that we see in the United States, and then you see the same shipping containers returning with our trash. Um, you know, this was back when China was still accepting our trash and our recycling. Um, and so, really, just watching the exchange of goods globally around the world. Um, you know, also I spent time in, in other parts of Europe and other parts of the United States after that too. And um, you know, then landed back in Oakland, California, which is also a major shipping port. And so I, I somehow have this connection with shipping containers and how they become these vessels for just consumerism and, and buying things, right? But then like seeing the effects of them, seeing, you know, that we buy stuff, we send, we send it right back as trash um, or we send them back empty. And then you know they become repurposed. And then also seeing you know living here in Oakland, you see the the effects that that shipping port has on the communities that live closer to the port. Um, obviously, you know as opposed to the communities that maybe live up in the hills farther away from those 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 places, right? So that that time of travel was also very influential for me in terms of looking at how we look at sustainability. And similarly. Um, really looking at it from a systemic point of view, but, but in a slightly different way than you were, right? Um, you know, looking at that, how design interfaces with buying, with waste, with consuming, with shipping, with pollution. Um, you know, I think there's so often in design, we think of, you know, wanting to make sexy stuff. Um, but when we think about sustainability, it really goes much further than that, right? Um, it's also inter 
it's also interesting for me to hear you talk about your journey to um, these different colleges and and um, you know going and studying theology and philosophy and then like coming back to design. So you know I'm at the University of San Francisco, which is a liberal arts college, um, and students you know are required to take core courses. And one of the most exciting things for me is when I have the environmental studies students or the not design students who come to my classes and kind of bring those other perspectives into the field and work together to kind of tackle some of these problems. Um, so I know like, I feel like we've talked about a lot of really big things and then, you know, um, someone might look at you and say, oh, you, but you teach furniture design. So how does this end up in, in furniture designer, how does this end up in in the classes that you teach? And I'm wondering what what's your approach to to teaching sustainable design? Um, I know you you mentioned your seminar. I also have a seminar, but I'm I'm curious about just your classroom and furniture design and how these ideas come to come to appear in a semester. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it, it's um, my teaching has really morphed over the years. Um, while I was totally immersed in the Department of Furniture Design, I'm a maker as well. That, that's something that, that is my, uh, I'm sitting here in my studio at home. Um, and it, it's something that, that um, I've always, there's a certain wisdom in the hands uh, that bypasses the ego and, and, and may influence your, your abilities in one way or another. But um, working with my hands has always been uh, since I was a little boy something that I just had to do. Um, so that continues from a personal point of view. Um, I then started a class called Green Materials, Green Behavior. And um, thinking that if you don't have both, you don't really have either. Um, so that, that um, morphed into the core seminar that I teach for the NCSS concentration. And it's an interesting story how the concentration came about. Um, I was on the... Um, sustainability subcommittee uh, of the strategic planning for the RISD, um, which is a, something we do every seven years or so, seven to 10 years, where, um, you know, we plan for the future strategically. And um, so here we are on the, uh, on the sustainability subcommittee, and we're talking about the fact that RISD has 55 buildings, and 53 of them are antiques with various conservation covenants and one thing or another. Um, and we we're thinking about, uh, you know, how to how do we sort of navigate this whole thing? And right in the middle of it, I said, "Hey, wait a minute! If we neglect the curricular opportunities here, we're really short-selling our students. Um, th this was this is a real sort of test plot, if you will, of of a variety of buildings um, that require all manner of, of uh, adjustment to." Um, you know, lessen the, the community's carbon footprint, for instance. Um, at the time, I calculated the carbon footprint for the entire school, including 2,600 people. And it turns out that it was about four and a half tons per person per year, just for being a part of the RISD community. Um, and at the time, RISD was using 21 million kilowatt hours of electricity. And from this strategic planning thing, we thought there, there's an opportunity. And uh, with a few conservation efforts, the last time I calculated it, we were using about 18 million uh, kilowatt hours of electricity. So um, that's a 3 million um, you know, kilowatt hour reduction um, 
and I haven't tested it in the last five years, so I'm sure it's better now. Uh, but that includes bringing a whole new museum building online and a bunch of other things. Um, but the retrofitting was um, really remarkably effective. And it's the lowest hanging fruit of any of the conservation efforts. Uh, you get, it goes right to your bottom line. And we pay about 11 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity. So the math is pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, it's several million dollars right to the bottom line. So for any private um, institution such as RISD, that's a big deal. That's a whole lot of scholarships, <laughs> among other things. Yeah, the money, the money thing is a really interesting point that you've seen in a lot of um, universities or businesses that are kind of campus-like, you know, having multiple buildings or having different space. And I know there's also been a lot of studies um, in the Midwest or other parts of the United States where people might not be as um, welcome to the ideas of climate change, right? But if it's if it's presented not as we're doing this for environment, but we're doing this to save money, um, people are sometimes a little bit more receptive to to that idea. So I think that's you know that's one way way that people are are really kind of changing, wanting to do certain things. Well, um, you just described something really important, which is people only looking at one thing, right? When you begin to look at systems the decisions become easier and easier because there's a cascade of benefit, right? And so right. We're just looking at economic issues or just looking at climate issues or just looking at whatever it is, you have to see these things as a suite of issues, not just one after the other. Exactly. And, you know, that also goes back to your earlier comments about the, the five um, core principles and, you know, looking at things like the social impact of different things, right? So it's not just about a product or a thing, but also um, about the people that that affects. And, you know, I think right now it's a really interesting time right now, I feel to teach um, with the pandemic because you're seeing so many issues right in front of you. Um, you know, here in California, we are seeing fires. I've had students um, be in the middle of hurricanes, you know, that are, you know, in other parts of the United States. Um, obviously, we're all seeing COVID effects. We're all seeing um, issues of racial justice um, emerge, you know, and they're all related, right? And so, in a way, you're seeing these systems come together in in this really impactful way. Um, and obviously, you know, we're seeing kind of the the bad side of it, but it also then presents ways to think about, okay, how can we create this this larger change? Um, you know, if we do improve healthcare in this way, how will that affect sustainability or how will it affect education or how will it affect kind of all of these, these other things. So um, I'm, I'm with you there in terms of, of looking at systems. And I think you're, when you mentioned earlier about um, the class you're teaching in materials and behaviors, like that also speaks to this level of, you know, not just looking at one thing. It's not just replacing something. I know for me, oftentimes when I tell people that I teach sustainable design, they kind of immediately think that I teach about like re using recycled paper or making tote bags or something very surface level, you know, like I'm just going to take my package design class and we're just going to, you know, make everything compostable and, and that'll save the day. Um, and really that, that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not it. Right. You know, cause I think, um, you know, we've seen a lot in the past year about some of these myths of recycling, right? Um, 
only about 9% of our plastic in the US gets recycled. Um, if you make something compostable, it's only compostable if it's done in a commercial composting facility, uh, which we're lucky to have plenty of here in California, but I know that that's a, a minority of the United States, right? So it's, you think you have this easy fix, just like I'm making it recyclable, I'm making it compostable, or I put this green label on it, or I use recycled paper. But actually, if you're not looking at those other systems <clears throat> or how to change behavior, you know, that's, that's where the power is, right? So it's not just about that, that individual thing, but about changing your behavior. So how can we actually change behaviors to, you know, use less stuff instead of just using the same stuff, but made out of a different material? Um, so I know that's where like a lot of my teaching goes and where I try to, to kind of move design education towards. Um, I don't know, I'm just curious if, if you've seen other approaches to sustainable design education or that you think are effective or not effective or how, how, you, how you're sometimes perceived or not perceived as teaching sustainable design. Um, well, all of the, the, the things you were just, the examples you were just uh, mentioning, um, I look at that as um, dealing with symptoms of an issue rather than the root cause. Right. Uh, and, and the root cause is oft, can often be seen as a, an imbalance, a systemic imbalance in the system that is creating the problems or the symptoms, right? Um, and we, we tend to think we're, we're making a significant change on the periphery, uh, but that, that, that can be fine as far as it goes. But if you have a system that continually pours out problem after problem after problem, you have a structural issue <laughs> that, that underlies all these things. So my feeling is that if we're looking for uh, what Michael refers to as second order change, um, which is the, 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 the adjustment of the system, uh, the change at the systemic, systemic level. That's the only way to really deal sustainably with all the symptoms we currently have. And in, in, uh, in my teaching, I often um, uh, you know, sort of start off with design students talking about the uh, embarrassing fact that many of the issues we currently face are the direct result of what were previously considered designed solutions. Uh, and th this is not only embarrassing, <laughs> it's um, horrifying because um, the other thing is all these uh, outcomes were not, were, were started with well-intended desires, right? And I'm reminded of, of some of my theological work that um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux was one of these uh, interesting characters. And one of the things that he said that I thought was particularly memorable is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> and sadly, that, that's really very true. Um, people don't want to do the wrong thing, but they really haven't been taught how to make it come right. Um, so this, this, this idea that sort of the law of unintended consequences is always in play, right? Uh, if something's going to go wrong, it likely will. Um, and so how do you mitigate that on the front end? Um, and my feeling is that the only really, um, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe um, re reliable way to, to, uh, 
to mitigate that is to deal on a systemic level where you don't focus on one problem. You focus on a suite of issues that are interrelated. And then when you make a, a, a decision or an intervention in one, you have to understand the, the cascading impacts through the others. Uh, but when you, when you can make a decision that impacts them all positively, I do believe you have a better chance of avoiding the law of unintended consequences uh, so that you end up with, with a, a lasting um, solution. Absolutely. But, you, know, you know, nature doesn't solve problems. Nature, <laughs> nature adapts. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I mean, what you're describing too is, is this idea of a wicked problem, right? And climate change has often been described as a wicked problem, something that is, um, you know, very intertwined, very interdisciplinary, uh, comes from multiple perspectives, requires multiple levels of change and multiple interventions. You know, you mentioned um, root causes and I immediately think of the, the example of the iceberg and I, I you know, use this in my classes too. There's this kind of very classic diagram of, of you. You see the problem is just the tip of the iceberg. Like um, you caught a cold, right? But if you look underneath the surface, underneath the water, um, you see the rest of the iceberg. So what's the reason you got a cold? Well, maybe you weren't sleeping. What's the reason you weren't sleeping? You're working too hard. What's the reason you've been you know, working long hours because we're a part of this system that's creating like work, 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 always on culture, right? So, yeah. um, you know, looking, looking below the surface, uh, but also, you know, you described the suite of problems, um, you know, and one thing I encourage my students to do in my courses is how do you design for multiple issues, right? So, you know, how, how can you look at, you know, what is the effects of the environment and racial justice and healthcare, right? Or what is what is the effects of, you know, maybe a low-income neighborhood and climate change, um, and and water? And how could you design something that addresses all three of those things, right? Um, and kind of looking at things from an interdisciplinary perspective. Um, and you know, earlier you mentioned this idea of like not knowing everything. And I think of the, there's a very classic example in design of, of a pencil. And you think of a pencil as being this like most basic, simple thing. But actually, if you think about it, a pencil has wood, it has lead, it has metal, it has rubber, it has paint, <laughs> um, and they all come together. And there's no one person who could really like make a pencil, right? Because you're, you're relying on all of those different materials to make this thing and put these things together and all the different skill sets that go into extracting lead and extracting wood and extracting rubber and, and putting them all together. Um, and that's really what we need right now is designers to work in this interdisciplinary way of utilizing resources and knowledge from lots of different skill sets to approach these wicked problems. And I think, you know, earlier you also mentioned this idea of like, you know, the architect wanting to be on the cover of Architectural Digest, right? And I think sometimes in design, we have this idea of like wanting to be the design star, right? Or wanting to be the, the individual who made it or you know did something great. But really in reality, what we need is designers that are able to work interdisciplinary and work with people in all of these different fields. Um, I'm wondering if that comes up for you in your teaching of, you know, how do you teach designers to get beyond themselves, to work with others, to approach interdisciplinary problems um, in this way? Well, that's, that is the crux of the issue. <laughs> let, let, let's be honest. Um, first of all, systems thinking is not something that's taught 
in schools, in, in grade school, all the way up through secondary schools into college. Most students graduate college never even understanding what a system might even be. Um, so that's a big problem. Um, the, and it, it, a lot of the teaching that they have had before they come to my class anyway, has to do with a specific issue. Um, you know, the, and RISD is not unlike other institutions. We have 17 different departments um, and they're, they're, you know, craft departments, there's fine arts departments, there's liberal arts, there's design. Um, and, and it's a very, um, you know, on the face of it, sort of a skill-based uh, uh, silos, <laughs> if you will. Um, and it's, it's we, it, and the structure of the school and the structure of most academic institutions are these silos. And the, the, the uh, um, issue there is that people are looking for teaching units <laughs> and uh, things that are going to uh, uh, increase their department and their, and their visibility and their, the students' desire to, to study there. Um, but the, the, you know, when we just, when at RISD, when we did this um, nature, culture, sustainability concentration, we designed it to be a seamless overlay over the whole school. So there was, there was no specific, um, uh, you know, entry point, if you will, it would be appropriate for anyone who was even remotely interested in, in the issues. Um, and then the core seminars, the only required class, and we publish a, a catalog of about 75 different courses every spring. And so the students can follow their own creative passions, you know, through, through the curriculum um, and end up with something that is meaningful to them. Um, I think very often we, we um, think about teaching design as, as almost a cloning, if you will, of a particular way of doing things. Uh, but we, we really can't afford to do that anymore. And the reason why is we need everybody's uh, native intelligence and their God-given creativity to be brought to bear. And I think if you can teach to a student where they are uh, and not expect them to be anyplace else, um, I think that's a very, uh, that, that's like a, a, a sort of a core starting point, if you will, that I think is important. Yeah, I, you know, I, I uh, had a similar issue come up when I first created my seminar in, in systems thinking and using systems thinking with design, um, which I very, very purposely called sustainable systems in design. And oftentimes students don't realize what they're signing up for. Um, until the first class, and then we we unpack, we start to unpack systems thinking, right? But um, it, you know, I came up, I I hit this problem of like, well, I want this to be open to all majors, right? And you know, it, you know, teaching at a liberal arts school, you know, we we have you know design and fine arts and architecture, but then we, you know, we also have the environmental sciences and um, computer science and um, you know math and business and the whole the whole range of things. So you know, there is no prerequisite on my on my seminar, and again, you know, that's kind of an exciting thing because there's you know students who come to my class and they have no idea that like typography is a thing <laughs> right um you yeah. know and then and then likewise you know they're the same you know I have designers who come and you know don't realize that you know plastic comes from oil um you know in the environmental studies students are kind of going like what you didn't know that you know so um it's a really exciting um thing to to see that and I think you know what you mentioned about not teaching cloning um 
I I have a personal pet peeve and some of my colleagues know, you know, like the, the kind of classic design assignments that just get recycled, like, you know, that like every student should make a typography poster, every student should, you know, you know, build the chair and things like that. And it's like, we're, um, those, those are some of my pet peeves of, of like, no, we need to, not only do we need to adapt to the times, but yeah, we need to adapt to, to students' interests and, and seeing them for where for where they are and where they're at. I know for me personally, right now teaching remotely, that's just become even more apparent, right? Having students in different time zones and different living situations and different setups and just kind of really being able to say like, okay, where are you physically? Where are you mentally? Where are you emotionally? Um, and how how can you approach this? And how can you, what can you bring to this topic? Um, and in some ways, I, I had really amazing work this semester, despite the fact that it was all remote, because this idea of meeting students where they were at was even more heightened in, in this remote time. Um, I'm not sure how remote teaching was for you, um, or if you had any, any similar experiences with, with the pandemic and, and approaching sustainable design and, and the pandemic. Well, it, it was... Um the students tell me it was terrific. So I guess I'll believe them. <laughs> um, I, I taught two classes this semester. One is called the Biodesign Studio, um, which, you know, RISD has this absolutely splendid resource called the Nature Lab. And it's something like 80,000 different specimens of all manner of, of uh, natural uh, phenomena. Um, and it, it, it was, of course, somewhat quarantined and you had to make appointments and all this kind of thing. Um, so it really cut down the, the access um, for, for my students anyway, I think for, for the whole school. And that's just, you know, what I often say to my students is the best design comes out of the strictest limitations. And I think it's really critical if, it's, if this, this remote thing is, and you don't have access, figure it out, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's part of what we're trying to teach you. And, and here you are with a great example and a great situation uh, for yourself to shine. So cut loose, let it, let it happen. Um, so the, 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 the biodesign studio, studio was a fabulous result. Um, there were seven students who started with 13 and we lost a few. Um, but uh, anyway, the seven who stuck it out, so different. Uh, each project was was remarkably different. I mean, there was uh, the beach erosion studies. There was uh, um, how does a cactus manage its water? Uh, there was um, uh, wanting to grow um, designs on wallpaper using algae and uh, moss, and you know all kinds of of things that were really well researched, and uh, the examples were terrific. Um, and, you know, all that was, was, you know, people doing it in their kitchen <laughs> or in their, uh, you know, bedroom or whatever. And another student who was uh, in an in a independent study thing that was working on mycelium and uh, wanting to get uh, mycelium to be structural. And he built a lamp, a uh, tall floor lamp out of mycelium. Um, it was a wonderful project. And... Uh, you know, you, you just uh, you just never know. <laughs> and I, I think that's one of the things I, I love about teaching is that it, it's it's not about recreating me, God, God forbid, 
uh, it's really about uh, just being in that moment of nudging um, somebody towards a particular, towards their own reality or their own truth. And I, I'm reminded actually of the, uh, the two derivations of the word education. Um, I don't know if you took Latin when you were in high school. Uh, I was forced to, and I certainly did not distinguish myself as a Latin scholar. I can promise you that. Um, but the the in a conversation I had with a with a with a great uncle who was 95 at the, the time, had come over for lunch at my home uh, when I was a uh, high school student, and uh, afterwards he engaged me in in. Uh, in uh, conversation and he said uh, so tell me you've ta you're taking latin and i was at the time he said what's the root of the word education and um, you know here i am like oh my god i'm actually going to be asked about my latin studies <laughs> i mean it was hysterical uh, in retrospect i was kind of intimidated at the time but i i knew enough to to say at the root of, of uh, the word education is duco, ducari, ducavi, ducatus, which is the verb to lead. And when you put an E in front of any word in Latin, it means out. So you have these, these two words. One is um, educare, which is A-R-E, which is basically to train and to mold, which is most of what education is happening right now. But the other one is a ducare, which is E-R-E, -E, which means to lead out, right? Which begs a couple of questions. It, it's this idea that, well, if we're leading out, what is it we're leading out of? And what is it we're leading into? And I think that that, to me, that that's where the excitement is. Um, I mean, Training and molding is, is one way of thinking about it. But in my way of thinking, the training is in service to the leading. Does that make sense? <laughs> to the leading? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I often think of um, teaching as, you know, I'm, I'm teaching design, obviously, but I'm also teaching people how to be leaders, right? How to de use design as a, as a tool to create change, as a tool to lead. And, and that is such a great question of like, what are we leading towards? And I think, you know, your earlier point about looking at the, the problems of design and how design has gotten us here, right? And, you know, we need to unpack that a little bit more. Um, Truly. To to real to re then realize how how we go forward, right? Um, I think a lot of our of a lot of the problems that we've gotten into because of environmental sustainability, but also just other issues, right? It ha have really come from come from speed and convenience and wanting things to be faster, wanting things to be more convenient. I mean, certainly when you look at the amount of waste that's generated from package design or you know making individually individually packaged things available very quickly or you know getting your Amazon order shipped to your house and having it there immediately and just kind of um, you know needing the to-go culture and needing the like the quick 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 speed um, and really having to stop and slow down and really unpack that um, you know because that also gets into our, our work culture our life culture or you know just everything and I think you know for me when I oftentimes 
try to use the semester as a way to slow down, which is ironic because semesters can be very quick, right? Um, or it's not a lot of time, right? But it, it, using that time to slow down, to look at um, those problems, to look at how we got there in order to then decide, okay, now where do we go? Where, where do you want to lead? Um, so you're not just cloning and making the same thing, but you're making something better. Um, I know for me in this past semester, it's been really interesting to just think of how much has happened in one semester in terms of the pandemic, the election, um, you know, just so much happening all at once. And, and to really be able to bring those issues into the classroom too has been important for me in terms of thinking about how, how do you move forward and how do you as a designer use your voice to help move move the world forward, right? Um, I think that's such a great question because the, you know, um, how do you use your design in this particular way um, is one question. Uh, and clearly, you know, sort of a professional decision-based kind of, what am I doing? <laughs> um, sort of a reflective, um, uh, important ref personal reflection. Um, but but I think the, the other aspect of this that, that I think is, is critical is the fact that you don't just bring your design person, you bring your whole person to bear. And uh, the, the uh, you know, our society is plagued with isms um, of all manner. Uh, racism, of course, is simply the most obvious and pernicious, um, but it's by no means the only one. Um, but the, the granddaddy of them all, <laughs> is egotism. And the, the human ego is a psychological structure whose sole purpose is to accrue differences to itself. It's a tool of comparison, a tool of individuation. It's not a bad thing, but when we allow it to drive the bus or the boat or whatever it is we're thinking of ourselves, um, you know, in, in, exclusively, that's a problem. Because it, you know, the human ego doesn't like to be um, um, poked holes in, <laughs> uh, and and we tend to, to accrue these differences usually to elevate the ego and to you know uh, you know marginalize others or you know whatever. Um, and I think it it's we don't really have any rites of passage where the human ego is repositioned as a portion of the soul as opposed to the one driving the bus. If you understand what I'm getting at here. Um, the, the most indigenous cultures throughout history had a, a ritualized rite of passage that uh, was basically mostly for young men uh, to, to um, where the ego was repositioned from service to self to service to community. Um, and that that is something that we are in our modern society bereft of. Um, we have the driver's license, <laughs> we have uh, military service, uh, these kinds of rights, but we don't have any real, um, and, and there's, there's some uh, remnant in various religious traditions, um, confirmation and the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah, the, these kinds of things are basically meant to transition from youth to adulthood. Um, but 14 year olds are not adults, <laughs> uh, especially in our society. 
Um, so it's very often lost on them. Um, but the, 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 the point I'm getting at is that, that, um, that the social issues that we're struggling with are number one, longstanding. And it gets right back to this notion of, of the underlying structure being determinative of outcomes. Um, and we see that in design, but we see it socially too. Uh, the structures that we have in place that have been put there from, you know, for a long, long time, um, I think are, uh, they need to be changed for one thing. Uh, and the reason being is if we expect different outcomes, we need to change the structures that produces those. And that's the whole systems idea as well, right? In, in, yeah. the, in, the, in the social domain. <laughs> right. I mean, what you're describing is the habitus. Right, the 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 idea of our of our structures that form who we are and where we're at, and I think you know I use um, a couple readings about habitus and design and habitus, but also you know the idea of systems. Um, you know, I think Danella Meadows has a really great um, kind of twelve step uh, diagram or chart of you know different ways to interject change in the systems, and you know that that the end ones really are, you know, what's the goal or what's the point? And that's, you know, that's where you get at like paradigm change. And of course that's also um, the hardest ones, the hardest ones to change, right? That's the hardest ones that, you know, you can't really get at. But um, I, re I appreciate this notion that you bring up about like bringing your your whole self and kind of the, the idea of like the ego designer um, and, and being in service to the community. I think that's another thing I know I've seen in our, in our Zoom world, in our Zoom class, you know, I, I often have students that are like, oh, I'm so sorry, my roommate's in the background, or oh, my mom is over there, my cat's here. And, and I always, I'm like, no, welcome, bring them, bring them here. Like that's, that's, you have to embrace, this yeah. is where we're at. This is what's happening. <laughs> like you shouldn't, you know, um, and I think in some ways it's, it's allowed us to be a little bit more accepting of seeing people as whole people, you know, um, I'm, I'm not just a professor, I'm also a mother, I'm also, um, you know, a daughter, I'm also, you know, a neighbor to, you know, people in my neighborhood. And I think, you know, we need to see each other in that way, but also bring, bring ourselves in that way, because then that's when we're, we get to designing some of these solutions, right? Like, what if you had to design for your neighborhood, instead of, you know, making cool shoes, or, you know, making some sexy thing? Um, but that, that idea of designing for the social um, is really something that, yeah, we need to get beyond the ego. You think of so many individual products and individual things uh, that, that that's the design star kind of mentality. And we really need to get more at designing for social systems. Uh, I know one thing I use in my classes too is Project Drawdown, which has, um, you know, mapped out some of the top solutions that if we are able to tackle these solutions, this will like really have the biggest impact on the environment, right? And it's always like amazing to students when they see like, if we change the way we have refrigeration in the world, we could make a huge impact on CO2 emissions, right? But nobody's really being like, hey, designers, there's a hot, sexy field of refrigeration design, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like, you know, or, or cement or concrete, you know, um, 
and so, you know, sometimes I kind of joke with my students of like, you know, how do we make those things cool so that people will want to get get to them, right? Um, yeah. But it really is that that idea of wanting to design for social good, wanting to design for more than just yourself, wanting to design so that, you know, it's not just about this thing that you made, but it's about the pollution that's being emitted for underserved communities or for other people. So um, it, it, um, yeah, it gets it gets to that that those big underlying questions. Indeed, indeed. I I think the the other thing to to um, sort of inculcate into into students is this notion that every material has a backstory. It came from somewhere. You're using it for a period of time, and it ends up somewhere. And the extent to which that is a linear system is the problem. We need to begin to think of that much more of a, a circular system where the end product becomes uh, reusable or, or at least not injurious as nature reclaims it. Um, so, you know, the, the uh, I mean, it, 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 ultimately, from a social point of view, I think human endeavor is um, a search for meaning. And it, it's, um, not something we talk about so much in, in design necessarily, but it, it, um, it really lies at the, at, the, the, uh, at the motivating level for activities, uh, human activity, um, to, to seek social interaction, for instance, looking for meaning there, um, looking for meaning in a, in a, in a, uh, a retail store, uh, you know, in goods, in, in fashion, in, uh, um, music and all these things which are wonderful in and of themselves but the process that generates them um, has these deleterious long-term effects that we're not really understanding um, as we search for these superficial um, satisfying uh, satisfaction of, of, of uh, uh, this ultimate inner quest for meaning Jung, Carl Jung used to describe the unconscious as the direction we're currently not looking. <laughs> and I think this is a very apropos comment um, or quote at this point, because the, what this says to me is that we need each other desperately um, because we're not able to see it all. In fact, whenever we're looking here, we're not looking there. And that that is something we can rely on somebody else who might be looking there, right? Um, and again, bringing the whole person into, into the game, um, you know, I, I do believe that the future belongs to the collaborative. Um, and I, I think that's a, a, um, another thing in a, in a school of art and design or any, any school, we, we've sort of prioritize originality and individuality and all this kind of stuff, which is fine to, as far as it goes, but I don't think it serves the long-term uh, for these students. I think they need to, to learn how to work in teams and to, to uh, um, understand how to relate uh, in, in an area where they might be uncomfortable or, or in an area where they're clueless um, and depend on somebody else's intelligence for a moment, right? And that's not to denigrate anybody's um, native intelligence. It's just that none of us can know it all. And so this idea that we need each other uh, badly, um, I think is, is a, another critical aspect of, of the social domain. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, you, you kind of come, you, you lead us to a really great point of, of, you know, the idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable um, and, and learning from others. And we've certainly, you've certainly covered a lot of ground in today's conversation, but I'm wondering if you might think about um, what, what do we tell people like, now what? What do other educators listening to this podcast, um, what can they do? What can they bring into their classrooms? What can they bring to students? I know I, I sometimes, um, you know, again, getting to some of these deeper issues of, of looking beyond the surface and, and really looking at big systems, you know, sometimes people are, I think sometimes people are really quick to like, oh, I'll just assign my students to make a poster to save the whales, right? Um, but what what can educators do to, to go beyond the surface to look at some of these big questions? Well, that's, that's a, a very good and very deep question. <laughs> I, I will attempt an answer. I'm not sure it'll be uh, thorough, but um, I think um, one of the things that I think teachers struggle with is um, thinking they have to have the answer. Um, and the, you know, when you're willing to say, Jesus, I don't know the answer to that, let's explore it. That is valuing the, the, what the students bring to the table. And there's nothing more empowering for a student than to be listened to, <laughs> uh, to, to have their native intelligence valued um, and to, to have it be brought to bear on a particular issue. Uh, or, or you know, topic, whatever it is, doesn't have to be any world-shattering issue, um, but it could also be. <laughs> um, so I guess that that's one of the things I, I would say. And and you know, the the I've been I've learned as much from my students over the years as as they have from me. I can promise you that, um, and I'm the better for it for sure. I can remember a couple of years ago. Uh, two uh, young women in, in my core class uh, confronted me with the fact that only 20% of the authors on my book list were women. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, you know, frankly, I'd never really thought about it. <laughs> and uh, they, I said, well, why don't you give me some examples of, of readings that you've done that you think I should include? And my God, it was wonderful. They, they produced a whole bunch of stuff, some of which I was well aware of and others I'd never heard of. So, I mean, it was thrilling, actually. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's, that's the other thing about not being fully aware of, what, of the direction you're not looking. Um, and certainly the, the um, women uh, have been disenfranchised for so long. You know, one of the stories I tell, do, do you happen to know who Eunice Foote is? That name ring a bell? The name rings a bell, but I can't quite place it. Well, Eunice Foote was a uh, scientist in her own kitchen in 1856. And she was the first person who discovered the heat trapping properties of CO2. And at the time, you're probably aware, women were not allowed to be scientists. So she had to rely on her husband to deliver a paper. Um, I think she was living in central New York state at the time. Um, and that was the first uh, you know, at least that I'm aware of, that somebody understood that CO2 was climatologically pro problematic. Um, but of course, she didn't get the credit for it. 
four years later, John Tyndall from Ireland was the um, uh, male scientist who discovered, rediscovered, I think, the, uh, the heat trapping properties. And then the whole thing went dormant for 50 years. And then it was uh, Arrhenius Savanti, a Swedish scientist who uh, discovered it and uh, laid out his data. Nobody questioned his data, interestingly. What they said was, oh, the, you know, we're, we're too little and the world is too big and look at how big the sky is and all this. And it was dismissed again. Um, and then of course, um, not until the NASA scientist uh, whose name is currently Jim, uh, oh God, senior moment, pardon me. Anyway, um, you know, in the 60s where this was begun to be, uh, you know, really come to a head um, and be, become politicized. But the interesting thing to realize is that when Eunice Foote did her studies, the human population on the globe was just about a billion people. Wow. Wow. And then when Svante did his, it was 1.3 billion. And Jim Hansen, that's the one I was trying to remember, did his, we're up to 4 billion. And of course, now we're approaching 8 billion. Um, so you can see that th this is a, a whole lot of people hurtling towards the narrow end of the funnel, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think, you know, you, you mentioned some really good things for people to to look at. And, you know, uh, you know, just as we kind of said that, you know, the students need to get past the the ego it's it's the educators too and I think you know I really appreciate your points about admitting you don't know everything and kind of investigating things with students and um, learning things together with students I think that's a really important thing that um you know professors they like to be the they like to be the design stars too right and so letting go of some of that um, is important and then also you know the idea of diversifying the field and I think we've seen that obviously, um, in the past year of, you know, calls to include more people of color, more indigenous people, more, uh, you know, queer and transgender people in the field. And I know, um, you know, I actively try to do that myself. And I've also had students call me out and say, you know, there's, there's, there's not enough trans authors in your, in your list, or there's not enough this authors in your list. And, you know, it's like you said, always trying to diversify our perspectives and also unpack some of these histories, you know, like you, like you, like you mentioned of like, you know, where's, where's, who really discovered this or who really brought this. And I think um, indigenous practices is a, is an area that we're seeing more people begin to talk about that, you know, there's so many indigenous practices that really are, are, that approach these problems systematically, right? And looking, looking in that way of, you know, not just uh, for nature, but also for um, for social, for the philosophical, for communities and connecting in these ways. Um, so there's there's lots for us all to, to unpack and to discover and move forward. Um, you know, so, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't. Um, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, this has been really, really great, and um, I wonder if you have any just kind of closing thoughts for us. Well, I, I was just gonna uh, comment on the indigenous wisdom um, and the the earlier comment about the ego. Uh, the ego is is also the structure that separates, right? Um, as a mother, you might have uh, witnessed one of your children 
uh, say it somewhere between the age of four and seven, who threw a blanket over a table and crawled underneath and said, I'm in my house, <laughs> right? They begin to separate. Um, and the, the interesting thing about the indigenous wisdom, I believe, is that they never separated their awareness from their place. There was never uh, that nature and their place were, and themselves were integrally, inextricably integrated. Um, and that the, the, the care and stewardship of their place, um, you know, worked very well for them for eons, right? Until the uh, North American, the North Euro Northern Europeans, you know, came ashore here and uh, all hell broke loose. Um, I mean, that's a little stiff, but you get my drift. Um, anyway, the, 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 the connection, um, the inextricable connection to the biosphere that in the indigenous have embodied for uh, generations um, is something we need to re-instill um, uh, re in, in the, uh, the white population primarily, um, but the modern uh, Northern European um, quote, American um, ethos. It, it has been woefully uh, bereft of that uh, particular understanding. And we're now paying the price. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The celebration and the, the commitment to, to unique spaces and unique places. Um, you know, we can't, the idea of, of creating these chains all over the, the country um, and the world really, um, we need to look instead to to the specific places and celebrate those places and those connections and, and where design can work in there. Yeah, it's really true. And, and it, it's not as if, um, you know, you, we, we have to go back to, uh, uh, you know, some pre-industrial uh, world, um, but we need to, to adjust our industrial world uh, to begin to be, to promote a, uh, a circular understanding and ultimately an environmental health. You know, during the the uh, the whole healthcare debate back in the in the Obama administration, nobody mentioned health. <laughs> right? I mean, on right. the face of it, it's absurd. <laughs> and uh, right. it's all about paying for illness. And then when you, they talk about the 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 um, you know the symptom level understanding. Right. Okay. We're, we're, it's going to cost a lot to deal with all these symptoms. Well, probably cost a hell of a lot less to deal with the cause of those symptoms. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So design, design for those causes of the symptoms, not, not the, not the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Uh, well, thank, thank you so much, Peter, for having this conversation today. And thanks to Ellen and Karen for, for hosting us on the CAA podcast.